Hello and welcome to the My Hope Story podcast from Hope Community Church, Balanak. Stories of hope, all about Jesus. Who are we, but sinners saved by grace? Right, Terry. How you doing, Pete? Bye, man. If you're not, if you've not seen this before, so we've been doing a little podcast for our church of our members called My Hope Story Podcast, and just been doing that. It's been great. And I've been trying to do maybe sort of a wee bit different, so try and catch people from Glasgow or beyond um, that aren't part of our church, but who know that same hope, who have also came to know the hope that only Jesus gives. And we've had a few of these, so John Mason's been on, Stuart Patterson's been on, but the best one is now, is the legend, which is Terry McCutcheon. So Terry, I met you, I think, when I started working at previous church in Berlarock, was it 2009? Yeah. You remember that? Yeah, I do. I remember it because we were at a, like a weekend away with some of the young people. And basically, you were the only other fundamentalist nutcase that was there, like me. So I was like, yes, there's someone here, um, which is fun. But Terry, we just want to ch- chat a little bit about life and you know how you came to know the Lord, what life was like growing up, and what the Lord's called you to now. Is that cool? That's fantastic. So, where were you born? What was that like? Oh, well, uh, just uh, doing the motorway a wee bit. Uh, uh, another place beginning would be uh, uh, Black Hill. Right. So I was I was born there in the uh, in the mid seventies. Uh, my mum and dad, uh, and I've got five brothers. Yeah, right. uh, so I'm, I'm number four. <laughs> uh, so I'm the oldest of the youngest three, and uh, so I stayed stayed in stayed in Black Hill all my life. Uh, you know, um, until I was nineteen. My mum and dad and that are still there. Right. My man and dad. How big is Black Hill? <laughs> Uh, maybe a couple of thousand people, I think, possibly. And is it just off the M8 now? Is it? Did the M8 not get built through it or something? Or no, the, the, the scheme is, is the scheme is to the side. Yeah, I. But I, it's, it's, I've always known the motorway. Yeah. I was I was kind of a boy. So you, you drive driving to driving to Edinburgh. Though why you would want to drive to Edinburgh, <laughs> I don't know. But it was you come on the motorway, Berlinny Prisons yeah. at the right hand side, Black Hills just just at the left, right. So you come after Rudry Steps. Yeah. Kind of a cut off, and uh, I so uh, I brought up kind of a brought up there, uh, kind of in the seventies really, um, and I think life was no different. Uh, you know, life was much more simpler back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, we most days most days didn't have anything, but you didn't you didn't know you were poor, yeah, yeah. you know, because everybody was kind of in the same boat, and there was a real something something back then. I think in many ways is is missing. The day sometimes is, I think there was a better sense of community yeah, back yeah, then. Yeah. I, th- I really feel there was there was more community, you know, in and out of each other's houses, um, you know, tapping each other for milk and sugar and tea bags and and and, and kind of a whatnot. Um, but uh, I we were all we were all there and in, in a up in a tenement, uh, all is all the boys on the one room, six years on the one room, you know, and. Uh, uh, one of my brothers wet the bed, and uh, thankfully I didn't have to share a bed with him. You know, <laughs> uh, I shared a bed with my my weird brother. But then we, you know we moved, we moved up to Proven Mill, oh, which is really just a yeah, yeah. you know it's the same scheme really. We got kind of a four in a block house when I was about t- when I was about ten, which meant the three years were in uh, different rooms and stuff. Uh, but I life was life was fine, uh, kind of a growing up. Uh, as I say, but I, I I I struggled a lot as a kid, you know. Um, I always I always felt there was something missing. Mm-hmm. 
I always just felt, you know, if somebody told me I was adopted, I would have said, oh, that's what it is, you know, <laughs> I, I, that's why I feel like, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I don't fit in and stuff. But I always felt uh, there was something missing. And then uh, years later, when I was a Christian, I read uh, in one of the books of the Bible, a book called Ecclesiastes, that um, in chapter 3, verse 11, it says, God has set eternity mm. uh, in the hearts of men. And uh, and when I read that, I, I, I kind of felt, that's what that, you know, that was it. That was what was missing. All, kind like, of did you have kind of Christian input upbringing? Like, did you just go to church? Was there like a, an awareness that you were... Or I guess it was a Catholic background you heard of? Roman Catholics, aye. Uh, uh, you would you would get that with my name, Dead Giveaway. It was Terence. And the top that's on uh, underneath your place. Well, well, that's that's uh, that's uh, my local junior football team. Oh, is it okay? St Rocks, a candy. St Rocks. Uh, so I uh, the full name is Terence Andrew Patrick Murphy McCaffrey McCutcheon, right? So there's no prizes for for guessing what football team I support. So I we were Roman Catholics, but we I would I would say whether it was Catholic or Protestant in the housing scheme. Um, and I, I say this all the time. Faith had more to do with belonging mm -hmm. than it did about believing. So we belonged to a particular football team. Uh, we belonged to uh, a particular political ideology rather than uh, believing particular or personal truths about the Lord Jesus. So, a cultural kind of I, thing. Yeah. I definitely. And uh, it was it, it was mere it was mere what you were anti than what you were pro. You know, it's you know, I'm not a Rangers fan. I'm not a proddy. Um, I'm a Catholic and and whatever else. But you know, being a real Christian isn't just about believing uh, or belonging. It's about behaving. Right. Uh, as well, and you know, I, I didn't really have any any examples of that. I, I don't think I really knew anybody that was a real Christian. And we were quite a, you know, my my dad's side of the family, Irish Roman Catholic, my granda, um, and then my mum's side of the family would be kind of a Scottish Protestant right. and Orange as well, you know. And uh, you know, they, you know, my mum's side of the family are brothers and was stuff. Was like mixed marries then? In that yeah, sense? it was. Aye. But you're brought up Catholic. I was brought up Catholic. Um, and uh, thankfully, which because means, you know, the wrong be side there, because, you know, because it means I'm a Celtic <laughs> fan, you know. Uh, but, you know, my mad side of the family, you know, they, they would have been orange and, mm. and uh, you know, frequent the Loudoun Tavern, yeah. which is apparently the greatest pub in the world, you know. <laughs> so, so I pretty much, we would have had holy photos, mm -hmm. uh, photographs up in the wall, you know, things in Mary and, 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 and whatever else, you know. Well, like confirmation, things like that, did you do that? Yeah, we went, we done all that stuff. I was an altar boy. I was, uh, I, I, I served as an, uh, an altar boy. Um, but it was, as you say, that word cultural. It's what you done, yeah. you know. When you've got a wane born, you know you just you just get it. You get a baptized. Yeah. You know we need to get the wane done. Um, you know you make your you make your holy communion. You don't have a say in that. You, yeah. you know you're part of the school confirmation, affirming the vows that your parents took in your behalf. I mean, again, you don't you don't kind of have, have a say in that. It's just all cultural. It's just it's just kind of a uh, kind of a what you do. And uh, you know um, there was no there was no. Uh, you know, there wasn't any sort of a Christian influence yeah. uh, with chapel whenever we went. You know, we didn't go to chapel. So what did you do? What did you spend your time doing as a young lad in Black Hill? Running about the street, uh, playing football, uh, stuff like that. Um, but I, 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 my oldest brother, 
Uh, my oldest brother used to box and uh, kind of a growing up, really. Uh, I really looked up to him, you know. Um, uh, he, he, was, he was a wee bit like my hero, kind of. I grew up my older brother and stuff, and he boxed. So when I was about 11 or 12, I started okay. I started to box, and I, I kind of had done that for, uh, for about five years. Oh. And uh, I was that good. Uh, I was that good that I had my own ring name. You know, they called me Terry Picasso McCutcheon. Somebody said, why do they call you Picasso? I said, I spend a lot of time in the canvas. You know, so it wasn't, wasn't very good. You're also a lot closer to the canvas than most of them anyways. Most definitely, most definitely. And, uh, you know, I had sponsors. And uh, the sponsors uh, sponsored, you know, their names were on the sole of my, 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 my boxing boots because they get mere exposure for their money. So I know that helped keep us, keep us a, 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 bit of a, a bit of a focus. But no matter what I, I kind of I did, there was always that feeling of there was an emptiness. There was always an emptiness. What about school then? Like you do well at school? How was school experience for you? Good at school. Um, I went to primary school in Germiston, which is between Blackhill and Royston. Uh, so I went to primary school there, a school called St Gilbert's. Loved school. Uh, loved school. Um, was good at school. Uh, was in all the kind of a top groups in the uh, kind of in the school. And then uh, secondary school was St Rock's. Okay. St Rock's secondary uh, down in Royston. And uh, again, uh, loved school. School was school was great, um, but uh, I think I think I think back then um, I started to get into a bit of trouble um, because I would be you know just nothing major, just with a school and whatever dog in school mm. and and whatever else. And uh, the emptiness that I felt, I would always say, see. See that age when you start becoming, you know, when puberty hits mm. and you start becoming, you know, a wee boy is beginning that process of becoming mm. a man. I struggled terribly. Um, and I would say, you know, if my head was uh, was wired to a video monitor for 10 minutes, I would get hung 10 times for the things that went on in my head. And so where do you go with that? Who do you talk to mm. about that stuff? Um, and for, you know, for myself, I, you know, I wasn't very articulate. Uh, I wasn't a great speaker, and uh, you know, and and I always uh, these things filled me with such low self-esteem, and I had a real lack of acceptance for myself because I felt that that's who I really was, and if anybody really knew who I was, then they wouldn't have want, want to have anything to do with me. So I became a chronic people pleaser. Okay. You know, I become dead funny in the class, getting myself into trouble, uh, and all that stuff because I felt if anybody really found out what went on in my heart or went on in my head, they wouldn't have wanted to have anything to do with us, you know? And so that's through secondary school, St Rocks. Like, what, where'd you go after that? Did you have idea of what you wanted to, job to do? Or what did your family do? Was your dad working? No, he didn't work. Uh, you know, my man and dad, you know, my man and dad didn't work. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> we'd often laugh about that. Uh, you know, when you get a census in, you know, my mum my shouting up to my dad, have you ever had a job? You know, and uh, you know, so never, you know, he never worked. Uh, my, you know, my ma, my ma would have, you know, would have been on, they'd have been on the brew, you know, getting brew money. But my ma would have had sometimes would have had wee casual jobs, yeah. you know, going out cleaning. So it was cash in hand and and kind of a and kind of all that stuff. And I remember she got caught. Remember she got caught, and uh, and uh, that that meant that there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of money about anyway being on the brew. But it meant that their money got cut for a long time till they paid paid yeah. back the money. So it made it kind of made things tough. So I never really had. Like, did they know, want you to do better than that? Like, did they want you to go get a job, and they like, or was it just assumed you would 
kind of same lifestyle? Or? Well, I, I, I think I think they they would want you to kind of get a job, but there was never there wasn't anything like a, a let's plan for your future yeah. or whatever else. Or, you know, how, how do you, what, what, what are you thinking? I think you should stay on at school, or but mm. you just kind of a left to yourself to to make your way yourself. And uh, you know, I never really I never really knew what I wanted to do because I never really knew. I never really knew who I was. Mm. I was all mixed up. I didn't really know uh, kind of what I wanted to do. And so I, I just followed pals, whatever they done. You know, I think my first job, my first job was uh, was a, a delivery van boy uh, in Dun and Moor. Right. And, uh, 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 you know, uh, delivering the ginger and uh, uh, stuff to shops and pubs and stuff like that, kegs of beer and cases of beer. And that was done in Brighton. That was where the depot was in, in, in Brighton Cross. I, I'd done that for a, a few months and... I never, I never lasted long in jobs. Mm-hmm. I was always getting the sack or whatever else. Then I, I was a, a YTS tire fitter. I worked in a, a cash and carry. Um, what else did I do? Uh, you know, um, removals, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, what else? Um, I was a, a, a forklift driver, oh. learning to drive forklifts and. And stuff like that. So, so lots like, of lots of different things. And so what like if it wasn't like obviously life oriented around work, like what were you spending your time doing? Like was there drinking involved back then, like kind of partying what about the streets? Like what was life like kind of towards the end of school and Aye, well, probably in the earlier teens, you know, experimenting a wee bit, as probably lots of folks in the housing schemes or whatever they are certainly where when I was growing up, you know, whether it was solvents, uh, you know, buzzing gas, buzzing glue. Um, uh, a, a wee drink now and again, a wee bit of a joint now and again. Uh, but it was probably around about when I was, I was probably about 15 and a half. Um, I started I started running about with guys uh, who were older than me mm-hmm. and uh, uh, certainly substances uh, kind of became the, the centre of the thing. I used to, I used to be a, a, a... I used to deliver Chinese takeaways. Mm-hmm. So I was the boy, I was the runner. Yeah. So there was a driver, yeah. and I would I would take the thing to the door, mm-hmm. and uh, so I think I think the driver paid me four pounds a night, <laughs> and uh, I got to keep all the tips. And me and my pal, uh, my best pal growing up was it was a boy called Pie Man, <laughs> and uh, me and Pie Man uh, had nearly I think we had all the nights. There were six nights in the Chinese delivery, and we had them all uh, between us. And so, you know, a young boy at 15, we were, you know, 14, 15, you know, we were, we were getting 70, 80 quid a week, you know. And so, um, so I had the means. And then, you know, as I say, we started running about with boys that were older than us, and uh, we're smoking dope. We're smoking dope every day. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's the way. And what I found, by the way, was, um, see, drugs... Drugs change how you feel. And and uh, I remember, I didn't feel too good about myself. I always felt there was something missing um, or, or whatever else. And uh, drugs would change kind of how I felt. And, you know, made me feel good about myself. They made me forget myself. There was a there was a, there was was a a pleasure in them. There was an enjoyment in them. Uh, there was an escapism in them. Uh, and uh, so we, we, you know, kept doing it. So that that became an everyday thing. And But very quickly, all the things that... Uh, that were, uh, uh, you know, part of my life, like the boxing, uh, that went. I used to play, I'd play the guitar and do a wee bit of singing and was always involved in school shows and all that and, and, and whatever else. But, you know, the, I'd sell the guitar mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff. And uh, very quickly, just using drugs became, 
you know, the, the centre of life. It was like, wow, I like this. I can't believe I found this. I love this. I want to keep, I want to keep doing this. And, uh, you know, that progressed, you know, by, by the time we were 16, uh, 1990, Glasgow was a city of culture that year. Uh, the dancings were open to five in the morning. And then we were going to the dancing, and so you're you're involved in that whole kind of a scene as well, taking ecstasy, uh, taking amphetamines, stuff like that. And and then after the dancing, uh, it, it would have been taking downers, you know, benzos, where up Johns, Valium, uh, or back then uh, it was yellow eggs, uh, tamazepam, uh, jellies. Uh, we'd have been taking kind of an empty come down, then through the week smoking dope, mm -hmm. and then the whole cycle goes again, you know, at the weekend. Uh, so that very, very quickly, very quickly, uh, drugs began. And I would say, you know, somebody would say, you know, how did you end up? How did you end up in, in drugs? And, and, and I would say, well, they were there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'd, I'd never really thought it through and thought, you know, do I want to take drugs? And, you know, they were there and I'd never really made a decision about them. And, you know, I just began to, I kind of began to use. I think um, that was the story of a lot of, your mates, a lot of guys, like growing up in the scene. Then was that? I similar? think so. Aye, I think so. I, I, I definitely think so. Um, um, you know, I, I remember. I, I remember hearing a pastor once saying, "You know, see the trouble with sitting on the fence. You can't pick what garden you fall in when the wind blows." <laughs> and that's true for lots of things in life, right? See if you see if you don't nail your colours to the mast, or you don't make up your mind about it, you'll be put into a situation where the actual situation will make up your mind for you, right? And uh, that's true for a lot of things in life, and and and, and that was certainly the way it was, uh, kind of a for me. And uh, you know, I, you know, they were there. Uh, uh, the, the rest of the the rest of the you know the rest of the gang sort of were doing it, and uh, ah, try this, you know. Um, there was no. There wasn't, any, you know, there wasn't any trauma. There wasn't any, you know, bad parenting going on in the house. My man, Dal, certainly no alcoholics or anything like it. Nowhere near it. Um, in fact, my ma, my ma doesn't even drink, you know. Um, but you know, I wasn't allowed to. I wasn't allowed to run the streets, by the way, like to two and three in the morning. I mean. I would say, you know, when people talk about their end, the end of their drug use, uh, you know, being laughable and demoralising, the beginning of mine was demoralising. I mean, I was running about Black Hill and uh, smoking dope, talking out the side of the mouth as if I was a gangster, you know, and all that. And then somebody would say, hey, Terry, it's quarter to ten. And I would have to run, double, 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 double draw the joint and then run home because my dad, my dad was quite strict. Um, I had to be in for half past nine. I was 16, Pete, and I had to be in. Did they know what you were getting up to? No, I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe, maybe they should have noticed, right? I mean, but, you know, kids, sometimes kids run about that age you know, we're like butterflies. Mm -hmm. We don't know who we are yet, and so we change things a lot. We change the hairstyle, we maybe change friends, we change our clothes, we kind of change the groups that we're into mm -hmm. and whatever else. But um, uh, there, there, was a, there was a lot of stuff, uh, you know. No, they didn't, they, they, they didn't, they didn't notice. Um, I think the first, the first they noticed was, um, so I start smoking dope at 15, 16, I'm taking dance drugs and, and whatever else, and then everything else that goes with that whole dancing, coming down and whatever, smoking dope through the week. By the time I'm 17, I'm using opiates. Um, I'm uh, beginning to snort, snort a drug uh, called Temgesics. 
And people would have got them for bad backs, and you know you can crush them up, and you can snort them, or you can, you know, you can you can inject them. Um, and we were we, back then, we were snorting them. I mean, we we looked down on people who injected drugs. You know, they were junkies, <laughs> and uh, those guys, we hung about closes, and we'd hang about closes smoking dope and whatever else. And if one of these junkies uh, kind of went by, you know, you've always got the boat iron brew, and uh, uh, you know, can I get some of your ginger? Um, we would have told them to take it with them, mm -hmm. you know. But little did we know that that was the road uh, that we were all yeah. uh, kind of again doing. So by 17, uh, kind of a using opiates and stuff. And and then uh, having uh, wee opportunities at selling drugs. And I was rubbish, absolutely rubbish at selling drugs um, because I wanted everybody to like me. And, uh, you know, I would be giving people £10 bits of hash for £9, you know, and, and that's costing me money. And my ma and da, or my da, my da fun drugs in the house. You know, he, 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 fun, he fun announced a speed and he found a kind of all deals of uh, hash and stuff like that. Um, and he put us out. Okay. Put us out of the house. At 17? 17, aye. Put us out. And uh, my ma, like most ma's, you know, with her boys, you know, she batted for me. And uh, I think after a week, uh, I got back in. I took us back in. But if you keep doing the same things, you keep getting the same results, right? And I hadn't changed. And I was in the intention of changing. And, and, and less than a week after being back in the house, my daft won stuff again, you know. And that was me out. Mm -hmm out you know so um a lot of parents have had lots of terrible you know terrible stories with their children uh, in addiction you know stealing off them robbing them robbing them blind robbing everything at those i never done that you know i never get you know i was at the house before um uh, you know i was anywhere near that stage so so i was i was a uh, i was kind of a i was kind of out the house i was at the house at 17 i think 17 18. where'd you go after that then Stayed with, stayed with my pal and his girlfriend for a while. Um, and, and then after that, I stayed with a brother for a while. Um, I stayed in my brother's house for a while in Black Hill. But uh, that was my older brother. And uh, see that older brother, the one that I looked up mm -hmm. to, um, who was like a hero of mine. Uh, well, he was great. You know, he boxed and he was very good, you know. Um, he was, he was very good. He could probably have made something he boxing for himself um, but he found alcohol at 19 and uh, he really fell for grace in my eyes uh, because I you know I, you know I, I pitied him you know when he was drunk and all that and I was like oh he's a pest and, and whatever else and uh, I actually resented him I, I resented him for you know for me thinking you know he was my hero at one time you know i totally resented him uh, but he had a house uh, in black hill and i was staying there but he he, he was gone with this woman in cumbernauld and he got married mm -hmm. and uh, so he gave up his house and moved to cumbernauld so that that left me homeless so um i, I went and stayed with another brother uh, he stays in pollock i stayed in i stayed in pollock for a month mm -hmm. and then by the time i was 19 that was me then in the in the homeless scene because I had to go and uh, register to stay uh, in a hostel when I was kind of in 19, aye. I guess that didn't help kind of starting of addiction stuff and all oh, that. Oh, no, man. Uh, back then, people were talking, the mid-90s, 1994, uh, the World Cup was about to begin in uh, the 6th. I'm, I'm nuts for dates. I, I remember dates and all that, one of my things. Uh, 
the 6th of June 1994, was the day that I booked into Bell Street Hostel. And that's up uh, the Gallagher end, the Barraland. You, you, yeah, you've got the Barraland T-shirt on. Is it uh, uh, Bell Street? That's where you had to go initially. Uh, if uh, you could maybe put up in Bell Street for a night. And there was, I think there was four of these big hostels. And each of them held something like 252 men. And you only had to be 18 to be in there. So it's 18 and over. And uh, uh, four of these run about the city. One was... Uh, in Brigton, one was uh, Bell Street, just up at the Barrowlands. One was uh, Peter McCann House, which is just at the Tappy Buchanan bus station. And another uh, was Cheapside Street, James Duncan House, which is just uh, across from the Marriott Hotel and under the Kingston Bridge. And they all held, they all housed 252 men. And uh, once you get in there, that was your room. You know, you didn't have to, you know, in some cities or some places, you don't have to queue up for a room every night. That that was your room. And uh, I think you paid, I think you paid something like, most of it was covered by housing benefit, but you paid something like four pound a week. Mm. And uh, you got you got a wee room uh, with a bed, uh, a built-in wardrobe, um, uh, a wee chest of drawers where a kind of a work tap area with a couple of sockets. So you had you had space maybe to put a TV mm -hmm. and uh, maybe a kettle and stuff like that and maybe have a wee fridge mm -hmm. and stuff. Uh, the toilets and the showers were all uh, shared back in the day. They were, they were, you know, they were there on, on the land. And you paid £4 a week or something to stay there. And uh, uh, it was one of these, you know, a hotel key card thing. And uh, there was a canteen. So you, 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 what you were entitled to was your breakfast every morning. And it was one, you were allowed seven items. And uh, seven items and uh, three cups, whether it was milk, coffee or tea, you know. And she thought it was brilliant, you know. And uh, in many ways, I loved it. Because, you know, you paid £4, you didn't need to worry about nothing. And then you could spend the rest of your money kind of on drugs. And that's that's kind of a, that's what I did. Uh, the police would come in. The police would, uh, sometimes they're looking for ID parades. <laughs> and uh, lots of different posts. So they want to come where there's a lot of men, concentration of men. And they would come to a lot of the homeless hostels because they knew the guys would do it. You yeah. come up with Berlarnock and you ask guys to take part in an ID parade, they'll chase you, right? They'll beat it. Um, but in a hostel where a lot of guys are scrambling for money, they knew that they would get that. And so, you know, the coppers would come and we would, you know, we would get, you know, six, ten pounds sometimes for, really? for doing an ID, doing an ID parade. Sometimes they get you to stay on for another one, you know? So it was, it was, a, it was a good wee racket, you know? Is that, was that maybe a short-term thing then, these places, or was, did people end up being there for a long time, or...? Well, aye, there was guys. There was guys there for years. Um, uh, there was there was older men, and they, they they'd been in these places ten, ten years or whatever. I suppose it's it's uh, there's if if you're not causing any hassle, there's no push on you, and if you're not pushing to try and kind of get a house, and and you know, and 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 in many ways, sometimes a house isn't the answer, right? Because a house can just be an elastoplast mm -hmm. uh, kind of air the situation, and uh, is you know I, I remember years ago speaking somewhere and and somebody saying, well, why do we have all these homeless? Oh, I see all these empty houses, and and sometimes that can be the worst thing because mm -hmm. unless you address mm -hmm. the issues that led to the homelessness in the first place, then you know if you get a house, um, you know we say to the boys in our groups, what happens if you get something that you're not ready for? Mm -hmm. Well, it ends up a terrible mess. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can hardly look after myself and, you know, take a house, 
you know, a house comes responsibilities. You've got to pay bills, um, you've got to tidy up, you've got to buy food and 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 and, and whatever else. So um, being in a hostel really suited me because I, you know, no responsibility. You didn't need to think about nothing. There's cleaners and everything. You didn't need to think about nothing. You paid your four quid. You had a breakfast every day, and the rest of the money was your own. You know, so. Are you still using there at this point? Is that just oh, like every day, kind yeah. of what you did? Like? Yeah, yeah. And what like? Where did that lead? Um, so, um, just before I left my housing scheme, but just before I left Black Hill, um, Smack Heroin Hut, uh, kind of a Black Hill, and uh, you know, you know, lots of us would be like, you know, lots of my pals would be, you know, beginning to smoke heroin, and they would be thrown in like uh, ten pound. Five pound each uh, for a tenner bag, and they'd half a tenner bag, and and whatever else. But it didn't interest me really because I still liked the the ten G six, and I would I would prefer to go to Carntine, and uh, I used to go down there and buy ten G six, get them for two fifty. I would prefer to have two ten G six than I would uh, a fiver bit of, uh, a fiver bit of kit. And uh, so when I first went into the hostels, it was I was it was still Thames. Uh, I was kind of a taking, but. A lot of drug use there, and so you know, it, it would have you know just developed on that road, using kit every day, and um, and you know everything else it kind of goes away up really. And was there awareness like so? You talked a little bit about that whole eternity set in our hearts kind of thing. Like, was there an awareness at that stage that there must be more than this, or like kind of a, a wanting to get out of that life, or wanting to what am I here for? What what's the what am I missing? Or was it just kind of numb? Do you think? Just numb. Um, you know that that's that's the thing that 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 that, that that's the thing. You know, here's what somebody once said to me: "There's good news and bad bad news about getting off drugs." And I says, "What's the good news?" They says, "You get your feelings back." I says, "What's the bad news?" You get your feelings back. So so back then, you know, um, the thing about drugs is they numb you. They kind of numb you, and so you you know. Um, some people would say, you know, do, do, do you know of a conscience? You know, what, what you've done to your mum and your dad or whatever else, or, you know, whoever else's house that you've tanned or whatever. Do you know of a conscience about that? No. No, because see when, you know, see when you're on drugs, you know, you're numb. You know, the only thing that's, the only thing that's in your mind is, I need to get more drugs. I need to get fully it. Um, and, and, and anybody that's in the way is kind of a collateral damage. So there wasn't any sense... Uh, that at all back then it was it was just uh, being hedonistic whatever makes me feel good I'm going for it and uh, so that you know um, so I would say drugs were not my problem drugs were my attempt at a solution so that emptiness that I felt back then that was always my problem how I felt about myself um, you know uh, the big the big questions of life, who am I, where am I going, what am I doing here, um, where have I come from? Um, but my house wasn't a little house in the prairie. Most, and a lot of houses and housing schemes are no little house in the prairie where we can get to sit and debate or talk about these things. And so my drug use was an attempt at a, a kind of a solution. And, you know, drugs do work for a time, for a time. But, you know, I love this. I feel this is what I've always been looking for. You can't believe, you know, when you meet people and they're no using drugs, you think, why are you no using drugs? You're half your head, you know? Um, when actually it was it was me it was half. It was kind of a me it was half my head. But as, as, as drugs, as you go in the years with drug use, 
what you actually find is, you, you know, like the Rolling Stones, you don't get the same done. You don't get the same satisfaction. Um, and then in the end, you know, you're enslaved. Um, and uh, you end up, you betray, you're, be, you're betrayed. Um, you know, the, the, the thing that I turned to, to cure my emptiness uh, in years to come, would actually become part of the cause. Uh, my emptiness, no satisfaction, and uh, the emptiness. And But then again, you've got all these wasted years and all the guilt and all the shame and everything else uh, kind of uh, um, added to that. So there was no sense of uh, thinking about eternity or thinking about what, what my emptiness or, or that stuff. Uh, that was until um, I got kicked out of that hostel. I was in that hostel and got kicked out of that one. Uh, I, I get kicked out for uh, kicked out for fighting. It wasn't even my fight; it was somebody <laughs> else's fight, and it was I, I involved in it and whatever else. But I get kicked out, and that was that was me meant to be DNA. Do not accommodate, right? But I peeled it, and uh, I, I managed to get into um, Cheapside Street. Now, Cheapside Street Hostel was there underneath the Kingston Bridge, just down for the Marriott Hotel, uh, right along at the end of uh, Argyle Street, just before you go to the, the kind of exhibition centre. So I managed to get in there. And uh, again, same sort of a scenario, a 252-bed uh, hostel. But where we are in the city has changed. Mm. Because where we are in the city now is just along from the Anderston area and the Anderston bus area, uh, uh, bus station area. And remember, we're in the middle of the 90s. This is now January 1995. And, uh, excuse me, the city centre wasn't the way it is now. We're, we're going back, you know, you know, 20 odd years. And that was the red light district. It was a red light district then. And uh, I, remember, I remember one night I was... Uh, maybe the boat of cider or something like that. And I was kicking a ball about outside. It was a Friday night, kicking a ball outside uh, the hostel. And a, and a, and a boy uh, come walking down the street. And I, and I think he was fee up this way. Uh, we Knox, eh? Jamal Knox. Uh, I'm sure he was for Ballarnock or Easterhouse. And uh, he comes walking down the street and he's got a box of cornflakes. You know, when you're staying in a hostel getting seven items a day and whatever else, you know, but a box of cornflakes like gold dust, you know. And I was like, oh, where'd you get them? And he says, eh, I got them for the mission. Yeah. And I was like, all right, you want to take us? He went, shut new Terry. I says, when's it open back up? He says, Monday night. And I says, well, will you, t will you take me up? And and I, he took, he, he took us up. And it was up there, it was up at that party, um, it was up at that part of Argyle Street where what every woman wants used to be. Uh, Wawa's, uh, what every woman wants. One of the cheapest shops in the town, right? And that, that'd be one of the things you'd say, and that you get your rig out of what every woman wants. And, uh, you know, I never bought anything out of what every woman wants, but I once got caught shoplifting out of what every woman wants. It was absolutely embarrassing, man. <laughs> you know, and when I got took to the police office, uh, even the police were laughing at me. You know, they were bringing it out, you know, this and that. And then uh, for last, and he says, and a cuddly toy. You know, it was like a generation game. Absolutely embarrassing. Um, but there uh, in that area, there was a lot of there was a lot of the buildings. Uh, uh, it was beginning to get done up. They were looking to regenerate it and that. And there was like whole blocks that were uh, designated for uh, demo demolition. 
Is that down Clydeside you're talking? Down yeah, yeah, yeah down, down, down there. So uh, if you if you go through, if you, if you go walk along Argyll Street, mm. at the four corners where Pizza Hut and all that are, go under the central mm. bridge um, and, and go along that way, uh, knows f- uh, maybe run about... Um, there used to be a big bridal shop there mm-hmm. on the corner. I think is that called Brown Street and uh, some, maybe it's Crimea Street and the Ministry of Defence places yeah, there. Yeah. Do you know it? No, you're not as far along yet as the Marriott. Mm-hmm. So just run about there on the right hand side. So at West Campbell Street yeah, yeah, yeah. and that where where I think Bigger's the pawn shop. So uh, what was it? What was a knife shop? Victor Morris, you know, <laughs> Victor Morris shop sell big knives, big boner knives and all that. Um, just just at that area. So sort of in there, Cadogan Street. Street, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of a Cadogan Street, West Campbell Street. Because the Glasgow City Mission was beyond, like, behind that for a good bit. Like I guess that wasn't where you're talking right now, but was down but walking from that area to Clydeside. Yes. Was it Berkeley or something like that? Was that yeah, but that was, that, that was later it, on. So, uh, that was later on. So this was, this was even before Glasgow City Mission uh, had a building. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, there was like a block, like say like this table, and uh, it's right in the red light district um, where you are. Anderson bus station is there. Now, Anderson bus station, you know, you're talking about in the 80s and the 90s, it was mental, absolutely mental. There would be a lot of people uh, uh, skippering, which means sleeping rough, right? That's just a term that's used, you're skippering. And underneath the ramp and in there underneath Anderson bus station, it was like a whole different world, right? And there was, there was it was like cardboard city and there was people that had uh, their wee skippers all really nice and everything else. And there was all sorts of, but there was all sorts of damage being done. You know, you've got who are prostituting themselves, who are using drugs, and then they've got their boyfriends, you know, the, the boyfriends that are hanging about with them. You've got RA characters as well. Uh, you've got a lot of stabbings going on. You've got a lot of assaults going on. Uh, you've got a lot of robberies and rapes and all sorts of stuff. And run about kind of a back then, early 90s, remember, there's quite a few of the lassies. Uh, there was a spate uh, of, of murders uh, in the prostitutes. Seen quite about six or seven uh, of the lassies were all uh, kind of a murdered and stuff. So that's where it is, right? And, uh, you know, that... <laughs> This, this is a part of the city that even a lot of tough men wouldn't go, mm-hmm. right? Um, and especially under the cover of darkness. You don't wander along that way drunk. Um, but that's how it always, always, it always impressed me that right in there, in that part of the city that were under the cover of darkness that a lot of tough men wouldn't go, there was these Christians. There was these Christians. So Anderson bus stations like there, there where you are, but there's a block. This is Argyle Street. This is West Campbell Street. And and over there at your corner, there was an old pub called Cornerstone. And that was for the girls and the girls only. So all the guys would be hanging about outside and whatever the lassies would be able to go in, get a cup of tea and 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 and, and whatever else. And then the the, the 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 folks that ran Glasgow City Mission, it was a couple back then called Hugh and Maureen McKenna. And uh, both Hugh and Maureen had backgrounds like me. Uh, both of them were alcoholic. Both of them were Roman Catholic. Uh, and both of them went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And Hugh uh, got sober uh, nearly for a year, three times, and drank again. And uh, he, he, he wandered, he wandered at the pub one night. You know, you know, just crying out to God. It's you know, you need to be real because my life is doing the tubes. And he was back at AA, and uh, some people in AA had become Christians. 
uh, they'd go converted. Uh, they were going around to Finlay Memorial Church. Mm. And I think back then, the organisation now is called Stauros, which just is Greek for cross. Uh, but I think back then they might have been Alcoholics Victorious. So some of these alcoholics had wandered into these Christian meetings and had become Christians, had, had heard the gospel of Jesus and had committed their lives to, uh, to Jesus. So Hugh started going along there, getting nosy. And uh, um, uh, he felt there was an altar call, you know, the guy made an appeal about coming to Jesus and he felt he should have done it, but he didn't. And he went kind of a back home and uh, he was staying in his ma's uh, spare room at that time. And uh, the, he phoned the pastor guy, was a guy, an Irish guy called uh, Arthur Williams. And Arthur came up to see him and uh, Hugh said to him, you know, blah, 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 and whatever else. And Arthur there in his ma's wee room uh, led him to Christ. And uh, so Hugh, Hugh was then stalking about Alcoholics Anonymous, staying sober, but he just couldn't get air about the change in his life, you know, that Jesus was real and he was sharing about it in AA. And do you know the funny thing was, Pete, do you know the people who had most trouble with that was people who were a long-term sober and who were quite religious. Mm -hmm. You know, they would have been Catholics yeah. or Protestants, and they would have been saying to you, oh, you can't talk about that in here. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're meant to share your experience, your experience, your strength, and your hope. Mm -hmm. And you were saying, well, I'm just, I'm just sharing my experience, my strength, my hope. But he said that that's, that's what convinced him, that it was the truth, you know, um, where the apostle writes, you know, uh, the world becomes crossed out to you, but you become crossed out uh, to the world as well, right? Um, so he he ended up, he worked for about seven years in a homeless unit in the in the Talbot Centre, which is still there. Um, he worked there with homeless guys, a lot of older guys. Um, uh, you know, we're going, we're going back into the 70s here. And he'd done that, he'd done that for uh, about seven years. And then the opportunity came up uh, as a, a city centre outreach worker for Glasgow City Mission. Mm -hmm. So never had any buildings back then. Hugh, in many ways, was the, the spearhead of mm -hmm. all the work that you see still happening today. And he had a budget of 30 quid a month or something. <laughs> and he was to uh, go, run, go run the skippers and go run the places, build relationships up with folks, offer them cups of tea and, and whatever else. But obviously, because there was lassies uh, working the tune, um, he, he knew how dangerous that was for himself, just mm -hmm. as a guy and all that as well. And so his wife, Maureen, um, you know, incidentally, both of their names were McKenna uh, before they were married. You know, and uh, you know, you know, Maureen had become a Christian, obviously as well, and uh, she joined them in the work. So they approached Glasgow City Council because these buildings were earmarked for de uh, demolition anyway, and they were able to get that old pub. Um, so what they did was they got the old pub and they, they converted it just like they had been converted. <laughs> and they, they were reaching out to the woman. And then there was this other one here at this corner that was called Rendezvous. Okay. And, uh, and they opened that up for the boys. So we would go there. Um, they were opened every night. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night. And we would go. I would go there for the hostel in Cheapside Street. And I'd go up to, go up to the mission, a uh, cup of tea, uh, rolling sausage, uh, cakes, sandwiches, all sorts. And uh, and then every night they would also share they would also share a, a gospel a gospel message. Um so so that was that that was my first uh, my first introduction uh, to kind of a Christians and it was all through this boy Jamo Knox with a box of cornflakes <laughs> and I'd go up to I'd go up to the mission. And uh, it always as I say it always impressed me that this this place was absolutely nuts 
know what I mean? There would be slashings and all that happening outside, <laughs> and these Christians were there, you know, sharing sharing Jesus, wanting to make Jesus known uh, about these folks that maybe maybe other people in the city had totally uh, forgot all about. Uh, so I, I would go I would go along there, but I, I remember I, I would, you know. Um, I mean, being brought up, being brought up in Blackhill, and you know the the background that I've got. I said to you, you know, my Irish Catholic and Orange Protestant. You know, I was a big Celtic fan and whatever else. But even back then, I'd look for an identity, and uh, so I was quite a bit. I was quite bigoted. Mm-hmm. I was I was kind of a quite bigoted. My my room would have been full of a lot of political posters, mm-hmm. uh, Irish politics, and and kind of a whatever else. And I was quite. I was quite, I was quite bigoted, but understand, I was looking for an identity. I was looking for something, and uh, these folks at the mission would tell us about Jesus, and I'd be like, "What are you talking about? I'm a Christian. You know what I mean? I'm a Catholic. I'm not a Muslim. I'm a Christian. No, I'm talking about and all that." Uh, but there was one woman there who made a huge impression on me, and uh, she, she'd been a heroin addict for about 21 years. Um, she had done everything imaginable to get money for drugs and uh, here she was, she was a volunteer now for Glasgow City Mission, she was over a year clean um, and uh, I mean I didn't know anybody that got clean, well I knew people that went to the jail and uh, they, they, they came out you know, the, the bit of weight on them, we all the steamed grub in the jail, and uh, brand new trainers and clays and that one, and, you know, I'm off it. But then maybe five or six weeks later, they're back on it and bang at it again. So I never really knew anybody that had really changed their life that way. And and she would tell us, you know, been clean for over a year and whatever else, and, you know, what's made the difference in my life has been Jesus. And I'd be like, ah, right, right, aye. Jesus, aye, right? But she spoke about Jesus as if she knew him, as if he was real. And uh, one thing that always shone through was how much love and gratitude she had towards Jesus. Well, when you're talking with somebody like that, that's real like that, it cannot, it, it, it cannot but have an effect on you. And so I used to go away wondering, I wonder if that Jesus knows for me. But I was kind of a too caught up kind of in the life that I was living at the time uh, to kind of really follow it through or, or kind of a do anything about it. Um, I got a house at the hostels. Uh, I got a house at the hostels in 1996, February, February the 16th, I think it was, February 16th, 1996, uh, in the, uh, and staying in the Anderston area. So it's a wee bit, it's a wee bit away for the city, it's a, wee, a wee bit away for that part of Anderston. Uh, um, just where, you know, Mr. Sings, the Indian restaurant, okay. just at the right. So Mr. Sings, you drive along Socky Hall Street, Mr. Sings is right at the corner, mm-hmm. but that street there to the left, mm-hmm. going down there, is called Eldersley Street, and that's mm-hmm. where I stayed. It's a cracking big house. It was a cracking big house, and I had a girlfriend there, I had a girlfriend at the time as well, and, and uh, she moved in with us, and, you know, I would have said that back then, I would have, I would have had everything that I would have thought would have deemed me successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had a house, I had a girlfriend, uh, I even managed to begin to start working again, mm-hmm. but I was still using drugs. I was still using drugs. Um, uh, I, I, I'm on methadone by this time. 
started using methadone uh, in the hostel. Uh, there, was, uh, there was a boy who was getting methadone uh, for his doctor, but he was getting to take, take it away for the chemist every day. He didn't have to drink it in the chemist every day. He was getting 60 mil a day, and uh, he only needed 30 and he was giving me the other 30. So I was giving him something every time I got my gyro. Mm -hmm. And then, and then and you know, so I was I was getting into meth that way and then drinking on tap it and smacking, whatever else. And then I thought, I I'm fed up paying you money. I'm just going to get my own script. <laughs> and I went away. So I went away and got a methadone script. Now, methadone is, is part of your uh, 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 drug treatment services. It's, it's meant to be used to wean drug addicts from heroin addiction. Well... I had no, no, no intentions of getting clean. You know, I was just wanting something for nothing. <laughs> uh, that's what I went. That's what I went for. Uh, so I never, I never, I never went onto the methadone program uh, with the intentions of changing my life. I went onto the methadone program with the intentions of getting drugs for nothing. <laughs> and, and 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 most people I know, that's that's the truth, right? That's why, that's that's why they've went on kind of a methadone. So I'm on methadone, uh, and you know. But I'm still using in tap and all that as well. Uh, you know, get this girlfriend working. Um, but I'm bumping money here, there and everywhere. I'm using in tap and, and all sorts of things. You know, all the stuff that happens in a relationship, a, a relationship like that, the lies, the cheating, the betraying, um, you know, the half-truths, all sorts of stuff there. And uh, it was, you know, that lasted for about three years. Hmm. And then she... <laughs> She left us. <laughs> she, le she left us, and uh, you know, I was distraught. I was absolutely, I was absolutely distraught. Rejection and, and all that. You know, I hated rejection, and uh, so, um, what do you do with these things? Well, um, you know, the only thing I knew what to do with my feelings was and my emotions uh, was to anesthetise them. Because that's what I'd learnt the other years, right? Uh, I'd learnt well. This is what you do with them. Uh, you just used to, you don't feel anymore. I was going up, I went up and up and up on my methadone and, and whatever else I. Uh, but one of the turning points for us, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a V turning point, but one, one, of the, one of the points of turning that you know eventually led to the actual turning point was a, a good pal, a very good pal. It was a guy from Berlarnock, um, a guy called Terry Conley, um, a very good pal, you know. And uh, um, Terry took me to stay in his house. Um, he wasn't Terry wasn't staying in Berlarnock anymore. He used to he used to have a, he used to have a house in Pending, eight Pending Roads above the old Haddles and that uh, before it all got pulled down. And uh, but he was new he was new staying in the, the, the house in Gethamlock, I think. And uh, Terry took me to stay with him. He's a good pal. He's running a I'm running about Black Hill again. <laughs> I'm running about the pub up in Black Hill. And, uh, you Terry know, and Terry. Terry and Terry, aye. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I'm running about up there again and there's all sorts going on and whatever else. And, you know, my pals were drinkers and maybe smoked dope and whatever else. But uh, I, I was... Uh, I, I'll get to that. Um, so I, I'm on the meth and uh, Terry took me to Steiny's house. Um, you know, and I'll be eternally grateful uh, for him doing that for us. He took me to Steiny's house and uh, I think I was in 40 mil, 40 mil of meth a day. And the plan was I would come down five mil every three days, staying in Terry's house. Uh, I couldn't go anywhere. He'd batter me. Um, you know, not allowed to go anywhere. Staying with him, stuck to him. Uh, and uh, uh, I think by the end of four weeks, 
I was clean. Mm. But here's the thing. Um, here was me, I thought, I'm clean. I'm clean. Um, you know, that's me, I'm clean. Great. I'm, af I'm away from the junkie drugs. Um, but I didn't understand. You know, at Alcoholics Anonymous and places like that, they will tell you, if you don't pick up the first drink, if you don't pick up the first drug, then you can't get full of it, mm -hmm. you, you know. But I'd never heard anything like that. And so I just thought, well, that's me, I'm going to enjoy myself again. And, and what that meant was drinking, smoking dope, and, and taking ecstasies and all that again. And uh, I was taking ecstasy during the day. People take ecstasy to go to the dancing. I was just taking it. You know, I'd, I'd take it. Um, and sit, sit, in, sit in my wee brother's room. I was backstaining my ma's. I still had my house in Anderson, <laughs> but I was backstaining my ma's. I was backstaining my ma's. I had a good job in the railway. Ended up with a job mm. in the railway, but it was casual. It was casual. I was I still got my brew money as well, <laughs> and uh, I was I was a, a, a job in the railway, and I was uh, I was gone. I was going to work on the railway, shoveling and laying tracks, and I was full of ecstasy taking ecstasy, just, you know, and, and and what that meant as well was, like, my pal Terry and that, they didn't use drugs like me, or they didn't use the drugs that I used or whatever else, and I was ducking and diving and hiding for them mm -hmm. and, and whatever else, you know, and, uh, you know, that's that's what I did. Drugs was the number one thing to me, mm -hmm. and uh, so see, when I start using them, everything else takes a back seat. Every, you know, it takes right over. Uh, everybody else becomes collateral damage. And they're even a friend, a friend like that, you know, he stopped coming round for me because, you know, he's away doing whatever he's doing. And uh, that was me. I end up, I, I, was back, I end up back staying in my own house, uh, you know, doing all, all sorts of stuff. And uh, eventually I lost my job. I lost my job in the railway. Mm. Um, you, you do different training. And then every time you do training, you need to get drug tests. And I was ducking and di <laughs> I was ducking and diving the drug tests. And uh, eventually, you know, I think two two, two non appearances <laughs> meant that they that they deemed that as a failure, mm -hmm. and I got sacked uh, for my job, uh, kind of on on the railway. And uh, I went back to boozing. I was boozing all the time. Uh, I was in my house. I was going back down to the red light district. I was hanging about there, going about the soup kitchens and all that again. Although I still had my house. But I end up, end up, end up one night rolling about with the police. Uh, I was, I was steaming, man, and I was playing, I was playing, I think, Oasis music uh, out my window, and I had, it was, it was blaring, man, and uh, I, I was standing at the window like Liam Gallagher or something, <laughs> and 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 the, the, the police walked by, the police, this police walk, and he's looking up, and and he, he and he shouts, <laughs> he shouts up, you know, turn that music down. And I'm, I'm shouting back, this I was a nightmare. I'm shouting back, I can't hear you, pal. This music's a bit loud, you know? <laughs> you know, just a total nightmare of a guy. Um, and he's pressing my buzzer and all sorts. But I had a warrant out, and yeah. I thought, all right, I'm getting to jail. So I kind of, I just, I kind of went down, put my jacket in that one, and, and I kind of opened, I opened, opened the closed door, and he just jumped in us, and I started rolling about with him. But I went and snapped, I snapped ligaments in my ankle and I was like, whoa, whoa, I've broke something here. Oh, hold on and on that. Um, I, I snapped the ligament in, in my ankle. I ended up vomiting uh, in the clothes, getting took away in an ambulance and all that. And uh, 
I just went and had a brand new pair of Nike Air Max trainees on that I just got out my man's catalogue back in the day, you know, out the catalogue, yeah. pinting them up. No, that's the way we used to do it back then. And and when I got into the hospital, they had to cut them off as, man. A £90 pair of trainees <laughs> cut right off as. So I, I, I got out with a Stuckey and all that on. I don't know, I never got lifted for the want. Um, and here I was, I, had, I, was, I, was up at the, I was up at my doctor's getting a sick line to get to the brew. And I met a guy that I used to use drugs with in the hostels. And uh, now, you know, that was a kind of idea. I've been half smack and half opiates for about two years, okay. right? But I'm using everything else. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm clean, <laughs> right? And uh, as somebody once said, you know, to get half heroin and stop, uh, start drinking or to get half drink and start smoking dope, all you've really done is swap seats in the Titanic, right? You're still on a sinking ship. What you want to do is get half into the lifeboat of abstinence. You need, you know, you need to get in there. Um, so I thought I was clean. I wasn't clean. I was just as half my nut. Um, and I bumps into this boy. I'm moaning. I'm moaning about my leg. Oh, it's sore and all that. All the is 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 poxy paracetamol and ah. And he went, Terry, the only thing I know that would take the pain away would be a wee bag. He was talking about heroin, you know. And I'd love to buy you a bag, usual story. But I've no money. And, and I went, it's mad, right? And I was like, I've got money in the house, come on. And that was me, kind of a back, back, back using mm-hmm. smack. Uh, and uh, so I'm using smack. I'm going down to the soup kitchens again. And funnily enough, Pete, he was the same Christian's on the same streets, doing and saying the same things. For them, nothing had changed. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus Christ, the same today, uh, yesterday, today, and forever, right? Um, and, th- and nothing had changed for me either. <laughs> nothing had changed for me either. Circumstances and whatever might have changed, but nothing had changed for me either, maybe except my level of desperation. So I'm going down to these soup kitchens and whatever else. It's funny, right, how you can... You, you, you can be in something and accept the unacceptable. Here I was, I had nothing. All my money was gone in drugs. And uh, I would be sitting. I'd be sitting in my house, right? Um, I had two tellies because one had a picture and the other one had sound, <laughs> right? So you had to have the two tellies on at the one time. Um, the house is a nightmare, you know? There's, they're probably tidier midden bins than the house, right? Um, you can do any soup kitchens. Uh, you're getting uh, rolls and sausage and cups of tea. You maybe go away with a few wee sandwiches in your bag and a cake, and and I've maybe put some milk in a in a bottle for you and gave you some sugar. And then I've went up to my house via the Mitchell Library, um, outside the Mitchell Library, right? It's a cracking place for doubts, you know, for you know picking up doubts, and uh, you would be picking up the old fag doubts. You know, and getting dead picky because there was hunters. Um, you know, I don't take Benson and Hedges, only take Club, <laughs> you know, and putting them in your thing. Going home, uh, hang me out all the doubts into a roll up and whatever else, sitting back, who's an absolute mess. I've got heroin in us and thinking, my life's all right, by the way. My life's great. See, when I think back to that boy, so sad, man. And, uh, there's thousands of people like that in our city today. You know, think, you know, that are totally accepting the unacceptable. As C.S. Lewis said, I, I think we are a people who are easily satisfied, right? Uh, we're easily satisfied. And uh, that was that was my life. That was my life. So what changed? 
Well, here's what changed. They Christians that I told you about, Hugh and Maureen, um, they left Glasgow City Mission um, in 1996. It's one thing having great relationships with people, but how do you how do you change that or make that then into relationships, into rebuilding lives, right? And in many ways, they were firefighting mm -hmm. with the work at Glasgow City Mission. And remember, they too had drug and alcohol backgrounds, great experience of staying sober, staying clean, and great experience of the ultimate freedom and uh, the ultimate being clean in Jesus. And so what they did was they left the work at uh, Glasgow City Mission and they set up a, a new charity called the Open Door Trust. Now, the Open Door Trust had two, strang, uh, two strands to it. They had the uh, reaching out, mm -hmm. and they'd done that through street work. Um, they'd done it through a big lunch club. Uh, they'd done it through a, an introduction, a Bible study in Berlini Prison, uh, a drug group in Low Moss Prison. Mm -hmm. I always loved that, you know. Um, even the guys that ended up in jail, the guys that were homeless ended up in jail. Everywhere they went, the Christians were there, the Christians there again, you know. Um, you know, Hugh used to say, I'll wear you doing before you wear me doing, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, so so they had set up. And but So there was a reaching out, but then there was the rebuilding side. And the rebuilding side uh, uh, was, was like community rehab. So you get residential rehab where people go and stay. Well, this was support in the community. So people came into the centre uh, during the day. Uh, they, 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 they would get things today to provide them structure. So it's one thing to put down drinking drugs, right? But see, just no drinking and drugging. It's a, it's a negative, sterile thing. You know what the Lord Jesus says, you know, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, if you cl clear an evil spirit out of a house and you sweep it clean and you don't fill it with good things, well, he's going to come back with his pals, <laughs> his seven pals, right? And, and, and what a party they're going to have. So just no drinking, just being clean is not enough. Mm -hmm. uh, our strap line for my charity, Hope for Glasgow, is clean and connected. Mm -hmm. So just being clean is not enough. You need to get, get connected. You need to fill your time because, you know, being a drug addict or being an alcoholic, it's a 24-7 job, right? It fills your time. It gives you a purpose. Mm -hmm. You've got to get up. You've got to go out. You've got to get money together. You've got to go and score. You've got to use. And then you can't enjoy your using by before you're thinking about where's the next one coming from. So it occupies you 24-7. So when you know news, don't just use your like. Is that it? So you need structure, you need things today. And so if folks would go in and they would get wee bits of cleaning and whatever else today, they'd get lunch and whatever else, but there would always, always be uh, where it was an introduction to spiritual recovery, which would be like something maybe based on Mark's gospel, introducing people to Jesus, or some sort of a practical kind of a recovery group. So they had been doing that since 1997. So we're now in uh, 2001, and uh, I'm back I'm back in the tune. I've still got my house, which is no far for the city centre, um, and I'm back using smack, and I've been doing it in the street, going to the lunch club and all, all sorts of stuff. And uh, it had been seven years, six or seven years since I had been with them, mm -hmm. and they remembered me. And, you know, they said, ah, oh, Terry, great to see you. We, you know, we pray, we pray for you. We've prayed for you for years. And that woman that I told you about, mm -hmm. you know, um, the woman that I told you about that made a big impression on me, I celebrated my 21st birthday when I was homeless, and uh, I'd never had a birthday cake my whole life, right? <laughs> Black hole boy, never had a birthday cake. And uh, and I was going up to the mission this night, and there was boys coming back the way, and they said, Mags has got you a birthday cake. 
and I became so self-obsessed that I went back the way and didn't <laughs> go and I left it for a few nights but she had me a birthday cake and there was a there was a wee mini a real mini car on it which said 21 on it I've still got that somewhere <laughs> in the house that wee that wee car but you know um, that really meant something to me you know um, a small thing but a, a huge thing mm. you know wee things like that um, and uh, you know she said we've prayed for you we've prayed for you for years so here's what changed um, so that was all happening um, they were still in the streets and it was them that I was gone to I was gone to other places as well but it was them I, them I was gone to so I goes down onto the streets it was must have been the end of August 2001 and uh, I was clean but it wasn't, it wasn't by choice. I didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm doing into the red light district to the soup kitchen, hoping maybe to see somebody that could square me up or maybe somebody I could rob. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm hanging, about, I'm hanging about the soup kitchen. But here I found myself talking to one of these Christians. I was trying to get a tenner off him. That's what I was trying to do. I was trying to get a tenner off him. Um, but telling him about, you know, giving him the poor me's about, you know, I don't really want this life anymore and blah, blah, blah and all that stuff. And he said to me, could I pray with you? And I thought, fair enough. Because I thought I thought if I let him pray with us, then maybe he would, maybe he's a tenner. <laughs> I mean, I'd maybe be able to, all right, mate, all right. I really felt Jesus here, all right. He's a tenner, pal, all right. I'll come to your church. No one of the ones. Eating. Tell people eating, right? Get, get what you want. Um, and he prayed. He prayed with his people. Now, I prayed all the time. I've prayed millions of times before. God going to get me out of this. You know, walked up in Easterhouse Post Office or Bird Street Post. God going to get us out of this. You know, people you know are going to do you in because you've tanned all the bill money or whatever else or you've bumped somebody. You're going to get done in. God going to get me out of this. Um, and I never thought about God again. Mm -hmm. um, but this guy started to pray. I can't remember what he prayed. But Terry McCutcheon, I believe, for the first time ever really prayed that night. And I, I think it was just something like this. God, I don't even know if you're there. I mean, for all my religion and you know, external stuff, external religion, I don't know if you're there. I don't know if this Jesus character's true or real or whatever. But this character seems to think he is. <laughs> and, and and here's what I said. See if you're there. Gonna gaze a horn. No, there was no, there was no bolts of lightning. There was nothing like that. Um, but I went home that night and I slept. First day coming off of heroin, I slept. Never been known. <laughs> back doing, I didn't use the next day, back doing onto the streets, uh, back doing the soup kitchen, whatever else. I didn't even have an urge to use. I went home, slept again. Went to the lunch club on the Wednesday. The lunch club was based out of St Vincent Street Free Church, uh, just kind of there across from King Tut's yeah. there on uh, uh, St Vincent Street. Um, and uh, went, went to the lunch club, ate two dinners. Um, a pudding, whatever else. Then, then after the lunch club, what they, they they used to have for anybody that wanted to come, a drug and alcohol recovery group. It was an open group; anybody could go. And I went to the group. Uh, they invited me to come the next day, Thursday. We're going to go to the sports centre. Terry, would you like to come? Sure. Now that that was my payday, and back 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 then uh, in two thousand two thousand and one, it was still a gyro. Mm -hmm. So I got my gyro. Um, but uh, again, gyro. I was four days clean. I didn't even feel like using. And uh, I went to the sports centre, had lunch, whatever else. Uh, I went up to my ma's. 
always, always owed her money. She up became my man of money and I owed her and whatever else. And she said, there's a letter there for you. I picked it up. It was a cheque. It was a tax rebate. For, remember, I was working in the railway. <laughs> uh, but I had my real national insurance number in. But I, I wasn't in books in. It was casual. Mm -hmm. And I was still claiming Bruma. And I got a tax rebate. How did I get a tax rebate? Please don't nobody stick me in there. <laughs> um, you know, please don't phone centre one and stick us in. But there was a tax rebate there for about 95 quid. And, and see the extra money? The extra money put me on the edge. It began to put things in my mind. Um, and I went down into the tune and got one of these fast fast cash check places mm -hmm. and I got about 80 odd quid. Well, that aligned with the money that I had for my gyro and I went away and I used smack the Thursday, the Friday, the Saturday, the Sunday. In uh, the Thursday, the Christians had told me, come back on the Monday, come back here on Monday, one o'clock, bowl of soup, Bible study. And... Uh, I, I, the Monday, it was Monday the 3rd of September 2001, I wondered, well, should I go, should I go and all that. Uh, I went, well, I'll go, because I've no money left anyway. So I, I, I kind of, a, but I wondered what happened to me last week, how did I manage to do day four mm -hmm. days and whatever. But anywho, I goes up, I presses the bell uh, in the lane there at the back of St Vincent Street Free Church and Hugh McKenna opened the door and he went, Terry, good to see you. And I said to him, no, but Pete, see, for the first time in my life, I was honest about my drug use, about what I'd used, when I'd used, and whatever. And see if anybody, anybody is going to get free for anything, whatever it might be, whether it's a particular sin or a drug addiction or whatever, you need to be honest. Um, I would always say, see if you're not honest about the last time you had a drink or a drug, then you've not had a drink or a drug for the last time. Now, we don't need um, a perfect confession of everything in our lives, but... You, you can be honest with me, and, and, and if I say to you, if you had a drink today, you can be 100% honest about that, right? Um, you need to be honest. First and foremost, you need to be honest about where you're at. And for the first time in my life, I was honest. I said, Hugh, I've been using smack for the last four days since I've seen these, man. And he said, have you used smack today? I says, no. He says, well, you're in the right place. Come in. And uh, that was Monday the 3rd of September. And due to the great goodness and kindness and grace of God. I've never used anything, anything, again, ever since. So I was there, and now this time, I was there the full week, Monday through Friday, uh, five days clean. And uh, I wondered, well, what am I going to do? Well, this place doesn't open to Monday. What am I going to do? And uh, one of the guys said to me, would you like to come to church uh, on Sunday? And I says, do you mean chapel? <laughs> and he went, eh, no, hey, church, you know, still a bigot in us. And he kind of knew I was swithering. And he said to me, do you like Indian food? I said, aye, but I only like lambuna. And he says, well, I'll take you for something to eat first. And I says, fine, I'm in. And he took me to the Koi Noor, uh, which is the, yeah, I think it's, I think it was the oldest Indian curry shop in Glasgow, opened in the 60s. But I think it's shut now. I think it's all boarded mm -hmm. up. But uh, um, he took me there at Charing Cross. He took me there, and then he took me to a church on the south side. Uh, it was a Pentecostal church. He took, he kind of took us there, and uh, um, I loved it. There was live music and whatever else, and guitars and all sorts of things, and it was brilliant. The music was great, and and then the guy preached and 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 whatever else. I was seven days clean, um, but I would say this: see, when I get clean, you begin to find out that you're no clean. Sometimes that happens quicker in people than other people, right? But you begin to thaw out. See, when you're on drugs, you're 
you're numb. So like, like an ice cube, an ice cube when it's in a freezer, it's frozen, it's numb. Um, that's what you're like when you're using drinking drugs, right? But see, when you take the ice cube out the freezer and you place it in the kitchen table, it begins to thaw out. I mean, it doesn't become water immediately. It begins to thaw out. Well, when the drug addicts or the alcoholics stop drinking or drugging, stop, uh, you know, uh, partaking in their addiction, they begin to thaw out. And as I said earlier, there's good news and bad news about getting clean and thawing out. The good news is you get your feelings back, and the bad news is you get your feelings back. Uh, stop taking drugs, stop drinking, you'll feel better. And that's true. You feel your guilt better. You feel your shame better. And see that emptiness, wee boy at 15? You feel right. your emptiness better, right? So what, what I was doing all my life was burying stuff alive. But then when you stop using, it comes back to the surface. So I would say that when I get clean, I found out I wasn't clean. You know, beginning to think back to things that you've done things that have been done to you, full of anger, full of rage, full of resentment, full of guilt and shame, full of emptiness, eh, all that stuff. And eh, here I was in this church. I don't remember much about the sermon, but here's what I remember. Right in the end, the fella did, eh, you know, right, close your eyes and bow your heads and, and you know, there's a wee bit of piano playing or whatever. And, and, and he said something like this, you know, this evening I've been telling you about Jesus about how he made the love of the Father known. He's he come to die for us and die on the cross. And, you know, there's people in here tonight that don't know Jesus. And so if you want to come to know Jesus, if you want to want Jesus to be known, put up your hand. And I've got my eyes shut, just like the rest of them. And there must have been people putting up their hands in that. And he was saying, I see you, sir. Put your hand back down. See you, missus. Whatever. And, uh, and I'm sitting there. And, and my belly was all gone. I was, there was butterflies in my stomach, man. I was like, what's that all about, man? Um, and he said to, he, he then says, he says, there's somebody else in here who needs to know Jesus. And you know, Pete, I put my horn up, right? But Ephesians chapter two says that we're dead in sin, right? So you're, so you're, you're dead. You know, a dead person can't do anything. A dead person doesn't hear conversations. They don't feel, and they certainly can't lift their hands. The very fact that I put my hand up, I believe that Jesus had already came to me. Mm -hmm. Jesus had already came to me. And, and it was like, it was, it was even without even my knowledge or anything, you know, it, it, it came in. I was sitting going, you know, I, I was, I remember sitting thinking, you know, see for all my outward religion, Jesus hasn't changed my life. I remember the story as a case because I'm a wee totey guy. I remember the case, but Jesus changed him. He was transformed. And I'm like, I don't have that. So sitting there in my chair, I, I suppose through the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, I came to know Jesus is what you need. And, you know, I put my horn up. I put my horn up. But before Terry McCutcheon had put his horn up and accepted Jesus, Jesus had already spread his horns out and accepted Terry McCutcheon. And so in order for something to become clean, something else has to become unclean or something else has to become dirty. You know, you wash your face in the morning, uh, the water's clean, your face is dirty. You wash your face, the, the water becomes dirty, your face becomes clean. There's a transfer takes place. Well, very simply, that's the centrality of the Christian gospel. For God made him, that is Jesus, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus dirtied himself with all my sin so that I might be made clean. So that was the 9th of September, 2001. And, uh, you know, I've never looked back. 
I've never looked back. I got right involved at the Open Door Trust, learning about myself, learning about my addiction, but most, most importantly, learning about the God who made me and what he desired and what he commanded uh, for my life. And so I, I, spent, I spent about 16 months there um, in the groups of the Open Door Trust. Um, and, then, and then in January 2003, they offered us a job. And uh, I began to work there, you know, working in the streets, working in the groups, working in the prisons, uh, you know, taking the re recovery groups and stuff like that. Um, and, but all the while, uh, making sure that I didn't pick up. And the best way that I knew how not to pick up was get to know more about Jesus. Get to know more about Jesus. Uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's the greatest thing, for, you know, the greatest thing for me. And the emptiness... Uh, you know, God has set eternity in the hearts of men, Ecclesiastes 3.11. So it, it's only something eternal that can fill it. Mm -hmm. But here was my big problem. Um, in Romans chapter 1, it talks about how we exchange the glory of the creator for created things. Um, there's nothing wrong with created things. It's just the priority that we, uh, we, we place upon them or the importance we place upon. And I had things all the wrong way about. You know, it's meant to be God first and then everything else. But I was always looking for created things to satisfy me, created things to fulfill me, created things to give me a sense of purpose and identity. But you don't get them for created things. You only get them, you know, for the creator. And, uh, you know, I, I spent, I ended up, I spent about five years um, at the Open Door Trust working there. Uh, it was brilliant, loved it. Um, so, my, so it was great for me because... Uh, you know, I was a young Christian. Uh, I was, uh, you know, um, young in recovery sense. You know, no that long away for drugs. And so for um, for uh, for two thousand and one, uh, for September uh, two thousand and one to September two thousand and seven. My whole life was spent running about the Open Door Trust, going in there every day um, and stuff, and, and, and going to church as well. Is this uh, the charismatic church still at that point? That yeah, I was. I, I, I was going there. I was gone there. Um, that was my church. I became a member there. I was baptised there. Um, but, uh, but because of the teaching, the good teaching I was getting in the Open Door Trust, there were good Bible people, mm -hmm. you know. And, I mean, I mean the, 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 the teaching in the charismatic Pentecostal church wasn't a heresy, but it was very thematic. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that you, you know, you, you, you're big on expository preaching, right? You, you, you take a book of the Bible and you work your way through it, right? Because this, 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 this book has got a message for today. And, uh, and so you, 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 you work your way through it, a few verses or a chapter or, or whatever. So I knew that God had, had gave us the Bible in a certain way and so it needed to be taught in a certain way. And I, and I knew that because of the good people I had run about us um, at the Open Door Trust. And so I was going along to the Tron, I was going along in a Tron, you know, as it was in the day back in Buchanan Street, and the Tron was very middle class. Sinclair, who was the minister at that point? Sinclair, Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson, right? Who I, I, I love Sinclair, man. Absolutely love him, man. Uh, but uh, uh, I found the whole process absolutely excruciating, right? Because <laughs> uh, I'm a wee Glasgow guy. I talk like a wee Glasgow guy, and, uh, you know, n n never done anything with my life. And, uh, you know, it's quite middle class, doctors, lawyers, uh, students, hunters are students. And uh, we, we even had a sir there, Sir David McNee was a, was, a, was, a, was a member there, and he had been the top cop in the Metropolitan <laughs> Police, right? And I would often say that, you know, what is, what is a wee drug addict for Black Hill have the same, uh, what does he have in common with uh, the top cop in the Metropolitan Police? Well, one is 
one is an up and out and the other is a down and out. But without Jesus, both of them are out, right? Um, so no matter who we are, we, you know, the gospel's a, a great leveller. So I was going along there and it was Sinclair that kept me going to the Tron because mm -hmm. I found it excruciating, you know, because it was all oh, people that weren't there like me. Um, and it, talk, it spoke very proper <laughs> and all that. And, you know, the kids were all going to university and all this malarkey. And, and probably, I, I probably didn't like the students, probably because I knew I'd wasted my life. Mm. You know, I probably knew I was smart as them. But, you know, probably, so I probably had a resentment against mm. myself. But the thing that kept me going back was Sinclair's preaching. And that was just so good for me because it, it, it gave me, it gave me, Biblical convictions and gospel clarity, which you know, you know, I owe Sinclair just so much, you know. So I'm really, I'm still, still in the Tron today, mm -hmm. um, but I'm really at the Tron, you know, because of Sinclair. Mm -hmm. um, so he, you know, he kept me, he kept me, kept me going back. Uh, so I ended up, I joined the Tron. I joined the Tron in uh, in 2003. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I, I joined in, I joined in May 2003. And then I think Sinclair left in July. The final straw, hey? Uh, I, I don't think it was anything to do with me, but I. So I, I. So that was. I, I, so that took that, that that took us to the drawn, and uh, and uh, you know I was still working at the open door uh, the open door trust at that time, uh, but then the new minister was uh, Wally Phillip, and Wally came Wally came in August two thousand and four, uh, so Wally has nearly been at the drawn for for 17 years. And it's funny that, right, because different different ministers or different leaders that you've had there, they bring different things to you. And, uh, you know, um, Sinclair got me going to the Tron, uh, but that was God preparing me for Wally coming mm -hmm. because, you know, everything in ministry, ministry-wise and teaching me about ministry and all that stuff, I, you know, I owe, I owe Wally everything, man. I owe, you know, I owe, I owe him just so much. Which is uh, funny as well because Wally would be culturally miles away from you as well, eh? I mean, if Sinclair is, then well, he's, aye. he's like a doctor and... Aye, like... a brain the size of a planet, right? Yeah. And, uh, but, but dead down to earth and, uh, you, know, you know, dead focused and, you know, and, and, and what he's doing, he's got, he's got a plan and he knows what he's doing. Like Mez, right? Like a posh Mez, right? <laughs> um, there is a posh Mez, yeah, isn't yeah. there, on the, uh, the Twitter or something, something like that, posh, a classy Mez or something. I don't know who holds that, but. <laughs> so aye, similar in lots of ways. Um, but aye, Wally, so so Wally had come and he had been doing in London the Proclamation Trust, and they they had the whole Cornhill training course, and and Wally was keen. Wally was keen to get something like that going. Is he like, where's Wally from? He's not. Is he Scottish or? Oh aye aye, Edinburgh. Okay. Um, so his his dad. So English then. Aye aye. <laughs> uh, his dad was Jim Phillip, James oh, Phillip, I knew that, yes. and he was was, was a minister at Holyrood yeah, Abbey yeah, yeah. for about fifty years, right? And uh, uh, what a tremendous ministry that man had. Uh, but but Wally comes in uh, 2004, uh, sets up the Cornhill training course, first year, 2006-2007. And, uh, you know, he was keen for me to do it. And I was like, ah, you know, I've got a burden for drug addicts. Mm -hmm. I'm here working at the Open Door Trust because... And, and I would have liked to have done it. I went down. I went down to London for some summer school. You'd done it for a week mm. um, in 2005 and thought, ah, maybe I'd like to do that at some point. But I think it would have to be uh, alongside the work that I do at the yeah. Open Door Trust. Um, but as things transpired, um, I left the Open Door Trust in 2007. 
and signed up today, the Conhall training course, full-time. Um, and I signed up for two years. Uh, uh, one year is what was called an apprentice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I always found that funny, Pete, you know, <laughs> me with my big Celtic, Catholic, uh, Irish political boy, background, and knew I was an apprentice boy, right? The Lord does amazing things, doesn't he? <laughs> He's so funny, man. So I'd, I'd done that, uh, you know, was on the Cornhill training course for a year, and really, really, it's a course that that, that seeks to uh, to for folks to be equipped uh, and competence in the scriptures uh, and, and and confidence uh, kind of in uh, the scriptures, and uh, so it was all built around how would you preach and how would you teach this and. And, and that, and then, and then, and then I worked as a year as an apprentice, and then I wondered, what am I going to do next? I've still got a burden for drug addicts that's never left me. Still, still got a, a, a burden for people like me from my background. Uh, it's never left me. Um, but here am I. I've began to teach the Bible. I've preached it. I've already preached at the Tron by this point. In fact, the first sermon I preached at the Tron was January 20, 2008. Yeah. Aye. And uh, that always blows my mind, right? Because as you know, the Tron's got a history of <laughs> tremendous preachers, right? Wally Phillips, Sinclair Ferguson, Eric Alexander, George Duncan, Tom Allen. It's amazing how far you can fall, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, that's a wonderful thing, right? Um, you know, Ephesians 2, we spoke about that earlier. But some folks come to me and they say, you know, I wish I had a testimony like you. You know, I wish I had been a hell's angel or something, or I wish I had been a junkie or, or whatever, right? But everybody who's a Christian's testimony is there in Ephesians chapter 2, mm -hmm. right? What, what, what were we all? Well, the situations and circumstances might have been different, but God's interested in where we were spiritually. And Ephesians 2 says, And as for you, you were dead. So before you're made alive in Jesus, you're dead. No, there's no degrees of deadness. And I know. I mean, you're either deed or you're no deed. Um, there's no degrees of deadness, but there's degrees of rigor mortis. <laughs> um, so um, everybody, everybody who's a Christian's testimony is there contained in Ephesians chapter two, verse one to ten. You were deed. That's what life was like. What happened? God made you alive. And what life is like now? Well, hopefully, verse 10, walking in the good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? And uh, so, um, you know, so Alan and Duncan and Ferguson and Alexander and Philip, they were all dead at one point and God made them alive, right? Just the same as, just the same as me. So while he opened his pulpit in 2008 and, you know, and there I was, you know, wee heroin addict that was now a Christian, um, you know, preaching preaching it's wonderful you know we've been able to say anything about about jesus and that's not that must be almost back to where we're starting in terms of 2009 was when i met you when i was in grayfriars you were preaching one sunday and i still that's remember right. like first time i heard just really clear expository preaching bible gospel sermon. you use the whole illustration with the dvd i still remember that you had a dvd you brought you right. like imagine all your life was on this and, and uh, which is not far then, if you were starting in 2008, I was in Berlin for 2009, kind of aye. not far from the same point. Aye, was um, I? That's right. And then, it's just, do you want to give us a quick brief from what happened to then to what you're doing today? Like, Yeah, sure. Um, so, um, 2000 and, 2009, the apprenticeship finished, mm -hmm. thing finishes, what am I going to do? Um, will I go and work for a church full-time, or will I go back to working in the addiction field uh, full-time? Well, I get the opportunity to do both, so I worked part-time. 
as an addiction worker in a, a secular rehab. It's a cross-reach rehab called Rainbow House. Really? And I worked there part-time, two days a week. And then <clears throat> the other part-time, I worked, uh, I worked at the Tron. Mm. I worked at the Tron uh, part-time. Um, and then after that, two years, so that took me to 2011, uh, Cornhill uh, began a, 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 a new venture called the Pastors Training Course. And that was mere further theological training for those that had maybe been on the Cornhill uh, Training Course. But you've got to, you, you had to have, you've got to be working in ministry, you've got to have done Cornhill, mm. and you can go on the Pastors Training Course. And that was three years, so it was like a class setting um, where um, you know, it's on-the-job training. So it was every Friday. So every Friday it was either a study day at home or a day in the class, mm. and it was for three years. And at three times throughout the year, we had residential weeks mm -hmm. where we went for a week intensive training or teaching um, instruction. And uh, some of the big names uh, for, you know, Christendom would come and teach us. So like uh, guys like Richard Pratt, uh, Alistair Begg, uh, uh, Dave Cook, Dale Ralph Davis, um, Don Carson, uh, Dick Lucas, uh, all these all these guys kind of came uh, and, done, uh, and done a week with us and, and, and stuff. Um, so during that time, um, I'm, I'm working at the Tron as a, the Associate Minister for Pastoral and Social Care. Um, and what that meant was um, I was responding, we, 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 we had uh, lots of pastoral care teams and it was my job to keep in touch with all the care teams. Mm -hmm. And if, if somebody needed the minister uh, to visit, then I was the guy. Mm -hmm. And I'd done pastoral visiting a couple of days a week myself, which meant I was also responsible for all the funerals mm -hmm. uh, taken at the Tron during that uh, five-year period, as well as preaching and teaching. And, and also did a couple of groups a week mm -hmm. uh, for men uh, with, with, with addiction issues. So I done that. Uh, I, w I end up working at the Tron full time uh, for five years. Um, set up like a, a kind of a service called Tron at Two, which was meant to be like yeah, a bridge, a kind of a bridge service. We had that on a Sunday. And that's when you gave out two. the kind of like cord jackets and stuff to people in the way <laughs> <laughs> aye, aye, aye. and the chinos and all that, aye, all that stuff. Uh, uh, no, there was none of that malarkey. Uh, so, but, but that was that was meant to try and be like a bridge service, you know, because most people from my background, maybe not so much now, I don't think, you know, it's it's less stuffy, but still, for somebody like me, for a housing scheme and for the background that I've come from, they would, they would, they would find... They would, but they just would, right? It's not, it's not against the Tron or anything, yeah. but they would just find it a bit stuffy, right? Um, and so we, we had this service so that the folks could be in the church, meet the church, i.e. the people, and they feel comfortable in the thing. We gave them soup, um, uh, bread, um, and, and maybe a pudding, but there would always be a service, kids talk, everything, um, uh, sermon and all that, singing hymns. Uh, but the burden to reach those in addiction, Pete, has never left me. Um, it's always been a huge burden, and that that was partly I was allowed to, in many ways, make my job at the Tron, mm. and and that's that's partly a kind of a what I did. But I was doing three different things. I was I was I was I was doing the drug stuff. I was doing the pastoral care stuff, and then I was doing the preaching and teaching stuff. So I was doing lots of different things. And uh, the one thing, by the way, that a drug addict needs. Remember, I said earlier on, they need structure. The biggest commodity that any is any is have got that a drug addict needs is time. Mm -hmm. And when you're working full-time in a church, you know yourself, time is at a premium, right? You don't have time. And uh, you, I couldn't say to the drug addicts, so, you remember coming, Tuesday and Thursday are my days for use. The boys are in need. So in many ways, I, I was doing them a disservice. And uh, so that, 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 you know, 
the pastor's training course, I suppose maybe you end up thinking, well, you, you, you've, you've got to become a pastor. And I knew I, knew I was never going to be... Uh, you know, a pastor in the sense that you're a pastor, you know, working in the scriptures every week, preaching and teaching sermons every week. That I knew that was never going to be me, and, and it wasn't what I, I felt God was calling us to. Um, so I've, I've always been praying, right, what what my, what my doing with this burden, and, uh, and uh, you know, praying about it, talking about it to my wife, my best mate. Um, but in 2016, you know, at this time as well, Every year, every year for the past six years, our drug deaths have broke records, broke records every year, and uh, so much so now that we're the drug death capital uh, in Europe and uh, statistically uh, the world as well, um, Scotland. Um, and so the burden was there, and uh, I spoke to the leadership in the Tron about it, and, you know, Wally said to me, two years ago, Terry, I would have said, no chance, no, but I think the time's right. And so the, 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 the Tron set me free um, for me to leave my job as an assist, associate minister to set up my own charity called uh, Hope for Glasgow. I want to talk about that briefly for two minutes, but first, Reagan, could you please text Pete and Cara and tell them to pick up my kids from school? Because I'm not going to do that because I got out of school in two minutes. So <laughs> just make sure they will, that'll be great. Um, that's cool, though. We knew this might happen. Um, briefly then, tell us vision, Hope for Glasgow. So the 2005, no... 16? 2016, the, That kind of started, um, and I've heard you talk about that before, and I love Vision 4, but also like how the local church like goes hand in hand with that. So do you want to just tell a little bit about the vision and how that, what you're hoping to do? Aye, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, hope for Glasgow, and the hope and hope for Glasgow uh, is the hope <laughs> uh, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That, that is the hope and hope for Glasgow. Uh, but we're a, a, a total abstinence day programme. So normally, sometimes, I think I've said this already, is that you would get residential rehab where somebody goes and stays, uh, they get taken out of the community, they maybe go and stay there for six, six months of a year. Uh, well, what we are is community-based. We're based in the city centre, just along from Charing Cross, uh, which means that we are very accessible uh, for anywhere in Glasgow. So we're only one bus journey away for anywhere in Glasgow, including Balarnock and Bailison and all these areas, um, and even further afield. What that also means is, because we're based in the city centre, like, I'm not working out of Black Hill. Mm -hmm. I'm not working out of Balarnock. Um, you know, there's, there's things about schemes where folks will say, well, I'm not going there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Nor no does it just create a logistical problem, i.e. that we maybe need to get two buses or three buses, but there's also just a kind of a territorial yeah, thing, yeah, right? No well. going there, no chance of I going there. So being in the city centre, we don't need to deal with all that rubbish. So we're based in the city centre. Uh, the guys come to us during the day. They get input, support, group work, accountability, wanty-wans. They go back home at night. Uh, I think I said this to you earlier. Um, what I like about this model is this model values uh, the input of the local church. Um, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul reminds us about uh, the background, uh, uh, the folks that uh, comprised the Corinthian church. Uh, they were sexually immoral, uh, they were revilers, they were swindlers, they were drunkards. Um, and I always like to focus on what the Bible doesn't say sometimes, right? Because it helps you appreciate what it does say. And the Apostle Paul doesn't say to the drunkards, hey, and wasn't it good that we were able to send you away to a rehab in Athens for six months while you get yourself sorted? No. The Apostle Paul says that they, they, they were washed, they were cleansed, they were, they were sanctified uh, in Jesus, where? In Corinth. Uh, 
in the community of the local church. So see the place where they were running about causing all sorts of damage and, you know, all sorts... God was able to change them right there. There was no need to send them away. Now, in some cases there is a need, right, to send, but, but no, every case is a case where people can get sent away. And so what I love about our model is people can come to us and get input and support after us while at the same time still get the input and the support for their trusted leaders in the church, which they probably wouldn't get if they went away to rehab. They would be totally taken, kind of a taken away for them. So our strap line is clean, and connected. So our hope for everybody who uses our services is that they'll become clean for all substances, including alcohol, you know, we, we, we promote total abstinence, clean from all substances and connected to their families, their communities, a local church, and ultimately to the Lord Jesus. So you could say clean from substances and connected to support, clean from sin and connected to the Saviour. So it's, it's not one uh, or other is mm -hmm. both we teach both uh, the kind of a, at the same time but I suppose the, the, the biggest thing for us Pete is, uh, is, is the theology mm -hmm. that kind of underpins what kind of a, what we're doing and we would we would we would we would we would uh, view um, addiction biblically addiction in any shape or any form whether it's drink, whether it's drugs, whether it's sex, pornography, whether it's food, whether it's chasing money. Uh, the Bible has got lots to say about addiction. In fact, you could, you'd hardly turn a page in the scriptures without it, you know, talking about addiction or the human condition, yeah. right? Um, you know, my wee mate, wee Robert, uh, wee Robert was in McDonald's one night and uh, he was with another boy and the boy was, goes to Narcotics Anonymous. And they, they left McDonald's. They bump into this lassie, uh, who's who's a, goes to NA, uh, and 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 she says, "Oh, you've just been for something to eat. Oh, great. What you's up to now?" And the wee guy that goes to NA, he says, "I'm going to an NA meeting." And this lassie says to Robert, "Are you going with him?" And Robert says, "No, I'm going to a Bible study." And she done this, a Bible study, a a, a Bible study. What's the Bible got to do with addiction? And Robert answered in the way that only we Robert could. Robert says, what's the Bible got to do with addiction? But apart from every page, nothing. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So um, the Bible speaks fuller, clearer, deeper than any other book. Now, there's lots of books out there that, that are helpful. The, the AA book and the Narcotics Anonymous basic text, they're helpful. But they don't speak clearly uh, with the clarity that the scriptures uh, speak on. So, so we, we teach that at the root of addiction is choice, sin, false worship, and ultimately idolatry. Whoa. People in churches have said to me, whoa, <laughs> you teach that? You, you, you tell a drug addict on day one you're an idolater? I says, yeah. And they go, wow, whoa. Do you don't think they've been stigmatised enough that you're going to do that? And I would say, my friend, the gospel understanding of anything is never bad news. Amen. The gospel understanding of things is always good news. And in fact, if at the root of addiction is false worship and idolatry, then guess what's at the root of the solution? True worship. That's why Jesus makes a difference. You know, um, that's why at the root of addiction it's no sickness, mm -hmm. it's sin. Now, we could go up to the Beatson, me, you, and Regan. We could go up to the Beatson uh, cancer ward, right? Now, these people are sick. Some of them are sick terminally. 
and we could share the gospel with him, right? And we'd maybe get an audience because he's a big Texan <laughs> and we get an audience and the woman would love him. And, uh, you know, but let's just say one of these wee women gets converted, right? She gets soundly converted. Well, unless God miraculously moved in her life, she would still have cancer. Why? Well, because cancer's a health issue. But see, if a drug addict gets soundly converted, I would expect with the right input and the right support, they would get clean. Why? Well, because addiction is a heart issue. It's an issue of the heart. Um, yes, there's health issues connected with it, but ultimately it's a heart issue. It's dealing with our desires, right? Um, and so, um, you know, God asks his people that all the way through the scriptures, right? Whom will you worship? Where is your heart? Where is your heart? So that's what we go for. Mm -hmm. Aye, we want to deal with it here. And we want them to stay off of drugs. We want them to be clean. But ultimately, we want them, you know, we want them to be connected. And so we have our city centre thing, which is our day programme. But, you know, you said that the important thing is, I don't want people in hope for Glasgow. I want people rooted in the local church mm -hmm. because I, I know that ultimately in the local church, um, you know, the best thing to deal with, deal with idolatry is worship. Worship is the best weapon against idolatry. And when, you, when you're part of a, a worshipping congregation that preach and teach the scriptures and teach the Bible, um, you know, you learn to worship God. You learn to worship him in every area of your life. Um, it's where you're, you're reminded of the, the Christ who died for you. Um, and it's where you meet with fellow idolaters. You know, there's circumstances and backgrounds may be different, but that's what we do Sunday by Sunday. Mm -hmm. Idolaters meet Sunday by Sunday, and another idolater uh, stands up and he opens the scriptures and he speaks and he preaches about the one who's able to deal with all the idolatries and all the sins of our hearts. So um, we're dead keen that people get rooted in the local church. And so uh, before lockdown, we would have had uh, four uh, support groups evening support groups mm. that are held in partnership with Bible teaching churches throughout Glasgow. Uh, so the, so anybody can come to them. But the guys on our day programme, as well as coming to the day programme, if they're on the day programme, they need to attend at least two of these mm -hmm. meetings uh, a week. Um, and they're in Bible. We would, only, we would only partner with churches that we say the Bible gets taught well there. Because that's what that's 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 what the boys need, right? Mm -hmm. Why 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 should they be why why should they go somewhere else? Um, you know, the teaching the Bible is the most important thing, and 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 the boys that's that's where the boys' strength will be. That's where you know um, they'll, they'll they'll be prepared for fighting the battle. Um, but obviously during lockdown, things have changed a wee bit. So we have our support groups, our evening support groups. They're on Zoom three nights a week, a Monday, uh, a Tuesday, and a Thursday night. And, uh, you know, this kind of a lockdown and isolation, it's actually led for us to worldwide connectedness. So we've got people, we've got people coming on our meetings. There's a guy from London uh, who's a Christian. He was a Christian, uh, got clean, became a Christian, um, and then, you know, went back into addiction and struggled for about four years trying to get sober. Um, gone to a good church and whatever else, but just couldn't get sober. And he's been using our online meetings since the start of lockdown. But uh, he was eight months again sober again the other day. 
and but back rooted in the local church, mm. get married in December. So that's fantastic. There's a guy from Didry as well, isn't there? One of the guys. Was a f- uh, Roy Bingham now. Steve, uh, Steve McCann. Aye, Stevie. Stevie. Aye, Stevie. Uh, the Guffy. Uh, aye, Stevie's on. Stevie's on. Brilliant. There's a few. There's a few folks. Mm. Uh, there's a, a, a couple of lassies. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, there's a couple of lassies from Nidry mm-hmm. uh, coming on. There's there's a wee lassie for uh, Grace Mount who's okay. who's been on, and a few a few of the, a few of the guys for Nidry and Bingham mm-hmm. uh, are coming on, and you know. We just want to serve the church, Pete, you know. Uh, we are a parachurch in the truest sense. Mm. And I think, you know, I love the church. Jesus died for the church. And the church is the only organisation in the world that God has promised to bless. And I want people in, in the church. Um, if Hope for Glasgow grows big, that's great. Um, but it will mean, I hope, that we're getting more people into local worship and congregations of the Lord Jesus. And that's that's our hope for folks. Well, listen, I really appreciate that. I'm really excited to see what the Lord's already done and what he's going to do because we found it really hard as a church who wants to teach the Bible, who wants to put the gospel up front and centre to see people that have similar convictions both about what addiction is and how we can bring people to Jesus and see Jesus see people out of addiction, but also about what the church is. And yeah. like it's rare, I think, to see a church, a charity that is got a solidly biblical idea of addiction but also sees itself and there's nothing wrong with the parachurch when it knows it's the parachurch definitely it's whatever the parachurch thinks it could be the church is the problem isn't it and so it's that idea of um knowing that there's a need and there's a skill set and a ministry you can provide that we can't we don't have maybe that experience or that time or whatever but also when that works hand in hand with the local church and people could come here and get that discipleship and the preaching and uh I think it's great. You're encouraged. I, you, you don't get too far into the Church in Hard Places book. And Mez uh, tells a story about being with a group of students or something who were doing some missionary work or something. And, and the line goes something like, you know, they were dead down in the church, mm-hmm. right? And I've been involved in parachurch organisations and I've heard things like, you know, if only the church would do its job right, then we wouldn't need to exist. And I'm like, what a load of baloney. Um, Hope for Glasgow exists because the church has done its job right. Ephesians chapter 4 says that the Lord has given us um, prophets, apostles, pastors, teachers and evangelists. What for? To equip the saints Mm. for works of ministry. Right. So um, can you imagine a guy in Japan who's a missionary saying, you know, if only the church would have done its job right, I wouldn't need to be here. He's there because the church did do its job right. And I would I would always say this to, to pastors and ministers. You've only got one non-negotiable, and that's to preach the word in season and out of season. Sometimes what happens in churches is when it's a one-man band, everybody looks to the minister. He's today everything. No, that's not a biblical way. The biblical way is he preaches, he's set aside Sunday by Sunday to ensure that we have a strong pulpit, the word is taught faithfully Sunday by Sunday, and that's meant to equip us so, you know, we're meant to be partners in the gospel, mm-hmm. no passengers, right? Uh, we're meant to be partners. So the people in the pew, um, you know, we're all the minister. <laughs> we're all the minister. We're, you know, minister just means kind of a servant. And so we very much, you know, we, we love the church and we understand as a parachurch organisation, we are there to serve the church. You know, because as I said, um, somebody who's trying to get clean for drugs, they need input every day mm-hmm. and so that's that's difficult right you you know got a lot and of we time we say that like we if all we're doing as a church is expecting you know someone to come to know jesus and then you know leave all your community all your life you know behind and come here on a wednesday night and a sunday morning then they've got no chance like no. we need to have that in our lives day in day out discipleship and living for jesus but as churches who 
it's hard to do that, right? Yeah. And so that's where I guess, again, really appreciate that your heart and vision for that. So that particularly where there's times in people's lives we need that intensive discipleship. Most churches can't provide that. But yeah. to know that you guys are willing to do that whilst at the same time connecting folk to the local church, I love it. Yeah, it's, it's the, you know, it's, that's, that's, that's the vision, right? Um, because, uh, you know, um, and, and, and even, you know, even like Hope for Glasgow, where, where, you know, we're word ministry, I would, you know, I would say we're word ministry to drug addicts, right? We come under that section, we're word ministry uh, to drug addicts. But never just be content for drug addicts to have, uh, you know, a support group, even if it is well biblical and everything else, they need to be rooted in the local church, right? Because, you know, the, the body, you know, or the different people, different backgrounds and, you know, different accents or whatever else, different having different, different opportunities. Um, you know, that's what the church is. And that's, you know, that's where we want, you know, that's where we want, want folks to be. Um, just before lockdown, we opened our fourth meeting mm-hmm. uh, in partnership with Greenview Church, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Colin Adams Church. And the thing that excited us about that meeting was um, we all of it, all of my day program is for men only, and all of my evening meetings up until that point had been for men only. Um, but the Greenview Church, we opened a meeting that uh, was for men and women. And that was because uh, Greenview had had an existing addiction outreach thing uh, that hadn't met for about two years. But I didn't want, I didn't want to go in and start something and the women in that area um, taking a resentment with Greenview because now they were working with Hope for Glasgow and Hope for Glasgow only deal with men. Mm-hmm. So I decided because there was an existing ministry there mm-hmm. that I would open it up for women. But we only get four weeks in. <laughs> Uh, four Mondays in before lockdown hut. And so we moved everything uh, kind of onto Zoom. But last year, uh, in 2020, 160 different people uh, accessed Hope for Glasgow services, whether that be uh, our day services or uh, our evening services. 160 different people, and 30 of them, 30 of them were women. And uh, so, you know, that's that's what we're doing now. Um, we've we've already canvassed everybody who comes on, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the 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 next thing that we want to do is we need to add, you know, a women's worker, mm-hmm. uh, so that because women they're different for men, and uh, you know, if I had to put one woman, one woman into my drug recovery group, you know, I she could be the ugliest woman in the world, <laughs> right? But it would upset the dynamic because all of a sudden, you know. Uh, this guy's, you know, he's he fancies his chances, yeah. and that one fancy his chances, but they two have been blown out because she's with him. And and especially a woman coming out of addiction, she uses the greatest gift that God gave her, uh, which is her manipulation. And she'll have those guys kind of eating out her hand, right? Because when it comes to women, us guys are just stupid with that, right? <laughs> uh, so um, we, we're, we're working hard that, um, you know, we've got the funds there. But we just try to get the the, 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 the operational things and how, how will it work. We've done a lot of thinking through, um, you know, we're going to mix it and we're going to keep it separate. And, and I think where I've got to now is I, th- I think we want to keep it separate initially. We'll start small mm-hmm. and see if, we, see, if, see if we can build it up. But really what we're wanting to do is, um, you know, some of the women that are coming on might feel uncomfortable talking to me. I mean, I'd be all right with it, but, you know, they might just, there's just particular things. It's just better to kind of talk to a woman. So our immediate thing is, is ensuring that we've got 
uh, 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 more sources of sources of support mm -hmm. uh, for the ladies who who are who are already who are already coming on. So. Um, so that's what we've been doing. We've been, you know, doing that for uh, four and a half years now. I'm, uh, you know, I'm supported by a, a godly board uh, of directors. The staff team's been growing um, since then. Um, got two guys who, uh, addiction workers who do do the groups and stuff. I got a lady, Colin Adams' wife, Nikki. Mm. Uh, she she does two two days a week. Uh, for us, uh, admin and a, another lady who who keeps the books and okay. and stuff like that. And uh, God's people have been, you know, amazing to us. You know, folks say to us, "Where do you get your funding for?" Um, well, because Jesus is front and center, um, um, we would not, you know, all this new money, you know, drug deaths, you know, we're the drug death capital of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it's funny the, the the guy who was the the drug minister, right? He got sacked. Right, because the drug deaths were so terrible. And Dundee, which is the second highest city for drug deaths in Scotland, Dundee re-elected this guy. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, this is not a political <laughs> statement, right? But I think they just seen SNP and went for him, right? And and brought him back in. But this guy got sacked because drug deaths were so bad mm -hmm. under his watch. And Dundee is the second highest city statistically for drug deaths. Um, so they, they they just announced all sorts of new money. But we don't. We wouldn't get any of that money, right? And and we don't care about their money anyway because we believe, as Hudson Taylor said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's resources or God's supply. And uh, you know, God's church are amazing. Um, we've got a lot of people who support us monthly, um, who commit to giving us monthly, or folks who uh, commit one off, and um, churches who've supported us. We're grateful for support that's come from uh, Balarnock Church, Pete and. Uh, and folks like that, they have collections for us and uh, and different things. I still do a wee bit of preaching and teaching and going out and doing things and, and stuff like that. Folks have fundraisers and all that on uh, Facebook, birthday fundraisers, <laughs> give money <laughs> for my birthday and, and whatever else. So, you know, um, God's got plenty of money, right? But he doesn't keep it in the bank in heaven. Uh, he keeps it in our bank accounts where it's dead easy to get to. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we've never wanted... We've never wanted for for anything, and uh, God's been He's been so good to us. And uh, you know, we we would never, you know, that would be one thing I would always ask for prayer for is you know that we never lose our gospel convictions, because you know we 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 promote total abstinence like a lot of other projects, uh, but we are very clear, and what is at the root of the problem. And that can put us at odds yeah. with a lot of other things. And sometimes you can want to take the edge off to be more acceptable and to get the invite to speak somewhere or whatever. But I'm, I'm not interested in all that. But, uh, you know, sometimes the, um, the praise of men and uh, you know we you know we we want the praise we want the praise of God. And so, you know, we want to make sure that we we stay we stay uh, uh, right where our gospel moorings are. You know. It's been great, great, really helpful, really thankful to you. Thank the Lord for what he's done in your life and what he's still doing. Um, well encouraged. Do you want to give us some prayer points before we go? Just in case we're going to pray. And then we'll also put the link um, for Hope for Glasgow. I think it's got in the, the kind of bio and all that stuff in case we want to check it out. Aye, fantastic. What can we be praying for you? Aye, that'd be good. And, and, and if anybody, you know, anybody that, that's 
plugging in and watching, you know, needing support, you know, the, the website's there and that would tell you how to kind of access or support my phone number and all that. So now you want to get in touch, talk. We're here to help. We're here to help the church and we're here to help folks. You know, that's what we're, we were set up for. Um, I, that would that would be the, the main the main prayer um, that we, we, we state our gospel convictions. Uh, we, 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 we stick to our biblical understanding. Um, uh, you know, I, I have I have one member of staff who's been off sick mm-hmm. for quite a wee while. I'd, I'd really value prayer for him. Um, he's a good guy, but he's been off, he's been off sick, and, and 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 I pray that he would he would be returned to full health mm-hmm. and uh, returned to us. Uh, praying for uh, the work amongst amongst women. Um, then we, we would get the job spec right, and we would just get mm-hmm. the the right person for that for that job as well that would enable us uh, to do uh, kind of a more uh, more work uh, more work. Uh, with women and uh, as things begin to open up as well um, when we went into lockdown we had four meetings and uh, we we had four guys that were able to Mm -hmm. facilitate these meetings but right at the start of lockdown uh, kind of one of my guys died you know he died he died of a drug overdose Uh, he was a Christian and you know folks folks can slip back into the old addiction life because remember uh, the root of addiction is sin and we can slip back into the addiction life just the same way we can any sin but if you know for this guy you know 45 hours after hearing that he was using drugs he was dead you know and uh, that's you know, maybe that's my, one of the differences with that sin mm-hmm. is that it can kill you very quickly and um, so we've got four meetings but now only got three guys and uh, um you know we've we've also picked up a lot of people out with glasgow oh, nice. um and so when 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 lockdown lifts, we kind of just dump these folks. So we want to keep, they've come to rely on our support. Even a wee, a wee lassie in New Zealand, who's eight months clean, never been clean in her life before, using her meetings, mm-hmm. she's eight months clean. Uh, so we kind of dump these folks. So we're, we're, we're trying to think through ways that maybe we can have an online presence mm-hmm. uh, after lockdown. And that may well be that we have our live meetings, but we, we find some way of being able to have a Zoom link in. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to think that kind of a through as well. So they they would they would be they would kind of a be uh, the the main the main cool. things, Pete. It's been a joy. No, it's been great. Thank you so much. Um, we will be praying for them at our church. I'm sure other folk will be praying too, but thankful for you, Terry. I better go and get my kids though from Pete and Cara because it is <laughs> twenty past three. So great. Thank you. Nice guys. Thank you for listening to the My Hope Story podcast. To find out how you can have your own hope story, go to www.myhopestory.co.uk.